When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What an interesting show we have today. Nandini Jami and Claire Atkin of Check My Ads are going to talk to us about their important work defunding right-wing misinformation and extremist groups. Then we'll talk to Jared Holt of the Atlantic Council about his recent report on how extremist groups have evolved since January 6th. But first, let's have some fun. Andy Levy. Uh, Molly John Fast. <laughs> today, we must talk about America's most unctuous senator, Lion Ted. Yeah, that was an easy call. <laughs> His mistake this last week was that he was mildly little bit nice about the Capitol Police, whose job it is to protect him and his fellow congresspeople and senators. And so to make up for his being moderately nice to these people who've risked their lives and some who have died, he had to go on Tucker Carlson's White Power Hour and Mia Copa. Discuss. It was like watching the gimp scene in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> If it were ever possible for me to feel sorry for Ted Cruz, this would have been the moment, and I didn't. I didn't in the least bit feel sorry for him, but my God, it was, I have never, I don't think I've ever seen, and then he tweeted out a link to the segment. Oh, no, no, he did not. He did. Yeah, Ted Cruz tweeted out a link to the segment where he gets completely eviscerated and uh, neutered by Tucker Carlson. But here's the thing about Ted Cruz. Why is he so pathetic? It's a good question because up until 2016, you know, nobody liked him, but he wasn't like this. He just was annoying. And then suddenly he became, you know, he became a total submissive. And he's just, whether it's Trump, you know, it started with Trump making fun of his wife and then Ted, you know, supporting Trump. And then it's just gone down that path. I guess he found out he likes it. And I'm not here to kink shame. <laughs> like, it's a legitimate <laughs> lifestyle. And I, I really do think that once he gets, you know, once the people of Texas come to their senses and, and don't reelect him, and he figures out that no TV network even wants to hire in, him because— he, In another five years— because he just got reelected. I know, but uh, but event down the road, I'm talking about. I, he does have yeah. a career as a professional submissive. I think. I, my understanding <laughs> is that that they can make fairly decent money when your work is something you love. It's not work. <laughs> Here's the question, though. Like, if you think about the other senators who ran against Trump in 2016, right? Little Marco, 
Ted Cruz. Of all those sort of senators who have been in competition with him, Ted has really been the most destroyed by the experience, though now that I think about it, Marco has also been completely flattened by Trump. He has. I think what you're sort of getting at is nobody can say he's not smart. Right. Or maybe except for Jesse. Yes, he is. Um. Except for Jesse, though. <laughs> the problem that I would always pay Ted Cruz is that he's the best debater the Republicans have. Like, he's, an, he's actually... Like, if you're just doing debate club skills, he's, like, got the best skills. Right. Yeah, but high school debaters are the worst people in the world. It's like Ben Shapiro. It, ta- it takes some sort of brain to yes. do that, though. Like, you, ca- you can't call that person, like, a subprime IQ, as we've called Ke- Kevin McCarthy on this podcast. You know, that man, that man can't debate. He's not Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, Marco Rubio seems like he's not Kevin McCarthy either, but he's closer to Kevin McCarthy than Ted Cruz is. So you sort right. of see him doing that, and, and Marco just seems like he's kind of fumbling around trying to find something that works, whereas Ted is just like he has made a calculated decision to be this person. Yeah. And that's what makes it worse than, you know, some of these other people. Like like McCarthy, you know, he's just like, yeah, okay, sure, I'll go along with Trump, okay. Right. But, you know, <laughs> Cruz is, 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 is like he has definitely made this, you know, he has figured out this calculated position that this is what he needs to do to win, and he's comfortable doing that. And that's what makes it even worse and, I guess, even funnier when you see him debase himself. But what's interesting about Ted Cruz, which I think is worth going into for a minute, is that he has— some of the worst political instincts of anyone in the entire world. <laughs> like, remember Texas? The power grid froze. It still hasn't been fixed. And he was like, I'm going to go to the Ritz-Carlton in Mexico with my wife and children. And, like, they're in the airport. And it's like, I mean, it's so stupid. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's so stupid you— Trump wouldn't even do it. That's a good point, and it's hard to square with everything I just said about him being smart because that was like ungodly yeah. stupid. And but I think that's you know that goes more to ego, where it's it's just like you know he thinks he can do whatever the hell he wants, and Texas is going to keep electing him, and he probably thinks that because Texas keeps electing him. Right. Let me turn it this way, though. Some people were saying this was Tucker character assassinating him, so that. Tucker can clear the way more for himself for a presidential run. Do you guys think there's any truth to that? I don't think Tucker Carlson is real worried about Ted Cruz if he wants to run for president. I don't think Tucker Carlson is is planning a presidential run. I mean, I could be proven right. way wrong on this very easily, I guess. But If Tucker wants to run for president, he does not have to worry about Ted Cruz. So that's pretty fair. John Ossoff is proposing a bill to ban stock trading uh, for members of Congress. And their spouses. It has to be the spouses. That's incredibly important, I think. And look, good for Ossoff. I sort of haven't thought about him for a second since he got elected. <laughs> he's skinny. He's young. You, you would he's Jewish. Else. No, which is fine. Like, I don't, like, it's, you know, the way, the way politics is now, it's not bad to not think of a politician. But I, you know, I don't, he hasn't really been in the news much. He hasn't done anything particularly splashy that I can remember. But this is really, this is splashy and good. If you're looking for something that Democrats and Republicans have been like equally bad on, it's this issue. It is just, it's so beyond egregious that members of Congress and their spouses can trade stock. And there's, there is no good argument in favor of allowing this to continue. But what Pelosi said a couple weeks ago or whenever it was, 
She said that it's a free market economy, so it would be wrong to prevent spouses from participating (laughs) in that free market economy. Free market economy. I got to say, this was very welcome news to her husband, who recently purchased (laughs) millions of dollars in options for of Alphabet, which is owns Google. You know, it's a parent company of Google, which you know never testifies on the Hill and is never the subject of legislation. So no conflict of interest there whatsoever. It's just, the whole thing is in, is insane and, and good for Asif for trying to, I don't think he's going to succeed. I mean. Right. But I wish he would. No, I wish he would too. He said he's waiting for a Republican co-sponsor to bring the bill to the floor. And wah, that means wah. I don't think he's going to make it to the floor at that point, you know. Can you imagine the Republican co-sponsor? Who will it be? Will it be Mitch Romney? <laughs> Billy, you know, millionaire many times over or perhaps it will be you know i mean like it's gonna be ron johnson russia ron johnson you know as if if he can ban vaccines in the bill then maybe ron johnson will be interested in it i mean like the republican senate like i mean just you know we have so many legislations that are sitting basically on the desk of uh of of chuck schumer who is not married to Sonia Sotomayor, for those of you who read Tiger Beat on the Potomac. And you have so much legislation that's just waiting for 10 sane Republican senators. And then you look at these 50 Republican senators, you can't think of 10 sane. You could maybe think of three who might, on the right day, not be completely batshit. Yeah, and, and in this case, I don't know how many Democratic senators Ossoff's going to get on this one. No. You know, I mean, <laughs> so right. he can't get Congress to co-sponsor with him. But I think the squad is pretty much like it. And, well, actually, Bernie, I bet you will co-sponsor with him. That's why they're there, right? But I did look. I even if it doesn't make it to the floor, even if it fails, I think it's good that he put this out there and you know let people see that just hammer it home that this couldn't even get a vote or whatever. Good for him. Yeah, agreed. The other reason this is important, though, is like, while you'll never be able to get rid of both sides-ism, having at least one side fight for this and having some people be honest does help uh, the discourse a bit, I think. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's like this, Democrats have not been good on this issue, as we see from Speaker Pelosi, so it's nice to get a Democrat out there saying this, so at least there's one... And maybe maybe more, you know, even if it's not enough to pass, you know, at least I agree. Like, get it out there. The Democrats should be the party of banning stock trading for yeah. members of Congress and spouses. And it's it's awful that they're not. It feels like the understatement of the year. I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Molly, you retweeted this very smart Amanda Littman quote. Right, which was from a piece in The Times. Yes, about how Democrats should be spending their money. So Amanda Littman is the creator of something called Run for Something, and she's actually been on this podcast now twice. She's an activist and very, very smart. And one of the things she always says, so this is not something new, is that Democratic donors like to give to things that are flashy and not necessarily things that are, you know, the sort of boring kind of meat and potatoes of legislation, but they're actually the most important thing. And so in this article, it talks about how one terrifying bathtub math making political pundit, obviously he doesn't make math, Steve Bannon, has been (laughs) working on like encouraging people. You know, he has this wildly successful podcast 
called The War Room, which has been, the New York Times also had an article about this, has the sort of highest rate of disinformation. And after the election spent, the like, the, the three months between the election and January 6th spreading lies about the election, uh, Steve Bannon has been working the school boards. Like, he's really gotten down to the grassroots stuff, which is the stuff that Democrats should be focusing on, but they don't want to. They want to give money to flashy stuff. And that was the quote. And she's right. Yeah, she's absolutely right. I mean, the school board stuff is insanely scary. Ben Collins <laughs> has been writing about this stuff, too. If you're online, at least if you're on Twitter, you see it a lot that where it's, you know, in all these little areas. I say little because it's a, you know, it's a school. I don't mean like unimportant or anything like that. It's just because it's a school board. So it's a it's a small community. As Trump would say, we're seeing this more and more. <laughs> people are talking. Many people are talking about it. Many, many people are going to school boards and and they're pushing, you know, uh, QAnon stuff. And even stuff that's, you know, doesn't quite reach to that level of insanity, but stuff about curriculums. Book banning. Curricula, if I would, if I were going to be grammatically correct. With my Latin. Curricula. <laughs> Curricula. Yes, like you said, like book banning and, you know, all these methods to get teachers in trouble if they, if a parent reports something, you know, again, all modeled on the, the lovely Texas abortion law that encourages people SBA. to turn other people in. And and it, it it's frightening because th- this Bannon is, you know, for all his other things, this is this is a good strategy. Like going local yeah. is a very good strategy. And and I agree, you know, this needs to be countered. I I a hundred percent agree. And, you know, a little less throwing money at a candidate for Senate in, what was it, North Carolina, who had no chance to win, really? Right. No, she was talking about the woman who ran against— Amy McGrath, who ran against Mitch McConnell. Oh, Amy McGrath. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. J.B. Harrison in South Carolina. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, South Carolina. But, you know, those were two candidates that got an awful lot of -of out-of-state money from Democrats— uh, who were excited about their their big chances to win, and you know, well, Amy McGrath didn't even come close, and never was going to come close. But yeah, this, it's a really, really good point that this local stuff has to be taken much more seriously, and also state level stuff. You know, which which we which everyone has been saying for a while. The Republicans are are very good at targeting local and state level stuff. Yeah, and I mean, there are certain states where Democrats don't even run, and we've seen, and actually Amanda Lippman talks about this, if you run a candidate, even if they lose, Democrats do better in that area in future campaigns, which is why it's worth running people in our in R plus 27s. It, it actually, it all matters. Oh, that's interesting. It, it, to break that down more for people is that, the, I mean, it's so funny as like, you know, from marketing perspective, it's the thing of like point to point contact brings out votes. And even if you're just running for dog catcher and there's more people, there's those 20 people who wouldn't have voted, but they're voting for your personality who vote D all down the ticket. It really does make a difference. It's almost like doing volunteer work as a candidate. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It actually really works. So, I mean, Democratic donors, I mean, you know, they got very excited about Trump, but, you know, Trumpism is more than Trump, as you as we all know. Yes. So with that, we should change the subject to uh, that sore spot and talk about all the fun stuff that's happening around January 6th. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim Jordan, favorite of the podcast, is refusing to cooperate (laughs) with the January 6th committee. What are you guys seeing there? Look, Jim Jordan says he has no relevant information to share with the committee. And I believe him because the congressman, Jim Jordan, that I know 
would never say he has no information that could help the investigation of a scandal unless it were completely true. He's not famous for ignoring crimes. No, there is nothing in his past that would lead you to believe that he might know more than he's willing to admit. So if he says he has no information that could help the January 6th committee, I think we have no choice but to believe him. Next story. (laughs) It's not like the man spent 11 hours grilling Hillary Clinton about Benghazi. (laughs) Right? I mean, he didn't do that. Because if he had done that, he would be an enormous fucking hypocrite. But we all know he didn't do that, so. He would never. (laughs) There you go, ladies and gentlemen. He would never. Too classy. Subpoena his ass and hold him in contempt. If they can do that legally, I don't know if they can. Now, there's a question of whether you can subpoena members of Congress while they're actually in the... I don't know either. I think they can. (laughs) (laughs) Are you basing this on anything in particular or no? No, I'm not basing it on anything other than what I want to happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. I, I, listen, podcasting and wishcasting, they're, they're the brother exactly. and sister. <laughs> Very close. Right, exactly. Very smart. Uh, What's interesting, I think, about Jim Jordan is that he then posted this big lighter. What I wish Democrats would spend a little more time on is that Republicans truly do believe that they can get away with anything they want. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you can tell, like, he's so indignant that people would ask him to testify about, like, what's clearly, you know, crimes he's talked about on television. (laughs) And, like, I wish Democrats were a little more indignant like that. Yeah, although I have to say, this committee is doing better work than I thought they would. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm a little surprised at how much they're getting out there. And I, I really just didn't, you know, with my usual Gen X cynicism, I just didn't expect anything from from this committee at all. And if nothing else, they are getting a lot of information out there that we didn't know before them. Yeah, and there, I think also the thing that I'm impressed with is there's a lot of really good theatrics, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Right. Like Liz Cheney reading those text messages. Like the only way you're going to get people to give a shit about the death of democracy is if you have like smoke and fire and and this is what they're doing, which I think is good. They need to hire, I think if they hired Michael Bay to shoot a recreation of (laughs) of January 6th, that would be incredibly helpful. Isn't this basically what Dan Crenshaw's ads are all like now? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hire the people who did Dan Crenshaw's ads. Hey, folks. If you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or I prefer Don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Nandini Jami and Claire Atkin are the founders of Check My Ads. Welcome to the new abnormal, Nandini. Hi. And welcome to the new abnormal, Claire. Hi. So how did you two find each other? So Twitter. (laughs) But (laughs) so Nandini and I are both marketers and she is an incredible product marketer as well as being an activist and a leader. She has incredible skills. So I was in marketing Twitter. She was in marketing Twitter. She came to Vancouver where I live for a marketing conference and I DM'd her and was like, do you need a couch? And she said, no, uh, I have a hotel thing. <laughs> and I said, okay, no worries. And sh- we ended up hanging out three times in like two days or something. Like we were just, we had so much to talk about, about all of the things that we were worried about in our industry and how our industry was affecting democracy. What did you find? For me, it was, you know, I had been running Sleeping Giants for three years at this point. And I mean, I was pretty exhausted. I was like, when does this end? You know, I I either wanted to move on with my life in some way or really get to the heart of the problem and understand why Sleeping Giants still needed to exist because it had been so successful on so many levels. You know, we had defunded Breitbart by 90% of their expected ad revenue in 2017 alone. That's right. 4,000 advertisers had dumped Breitbart publicly and way more did it privately. Over 30 ad exchanges had dropped them. And so we had this like 
precedent. And like the advertising industry, advertisers clearly saying we don't want to be on this type of content. So why was it that I was finding like the same advertisers on the Gateway Pundit? Like what is what is going on there? So that is that is what Claire and I spent so much time talking about when we met up and we kept sort of we kept thinking about what is the root of this problem? What is the source of this problem? Why why is it that brand safety, which is like the practice of, of wanting to keep your ads away from, you know, unsafe content on the web. Why is it that this is a priority for marketers, but their vendors don't seem to be helping them achieve that? Like what is happening here? So we started to talk to any ad tech expert that would talk to us. We started reaching out to folks who had been in the industry, who had worked at some of these companies and just kind of just started asking them like the really dumb questions. Like, how does this work? What is an ad exchange? How does a publisher make money? Like just really, really basic questions. And Claire and I, we're career marketers. We think we're pretty on top of things, but we started to learn things about the ad tech industry and how ads work and how ads are served and placed and optimized that we were pretty sure that other marketers didn't know. One of the first things and one of the most shocking things we learned was a concept called keyword blocking. So especially after the Sleeping Giants campaign, advertisers became really sensitive to having their ads on anything that was controversial. This is something that that really bothers me because at Sleeping Giants, we were always really clear about why we wanted advertisers to address their ads on Breitbart. We used very specific language like xenophobia and racism and misogyny. Your ads should not be funding those things. But the way that the ad tech industry and the advertising industry as a whole interpreted the problem that we brought to the forefront was, well, we're just better off not funding anything that could potentially be viewed as controversial or sensitive in nature. And so What the ad tech industry encouraged advertisers and brands to do was to start adding to these uh, keyword block lists. So words that could in any way be related to a sensitive story. So the reality of that was that when there's a school shooting, they block all the words related to school shooting. Like, like for example, with Parkland, they, they literally, they put school shooting, they add Parkland. Some of them add Florida to their block lists and just like words that are not necessarily, you know, bad words. And in doing so, they block their their ads from being on appearing on anything that uses those keywords. But instead of the intended effect, which is to keep their ads away from things that promote violence or promote crime or illegal activity, they ended up blocking all the news organizations that talk about Florida <laughs> or talk about school shootings. So they were actually blocking critical coverage, critical news coverage through what was known as an industry best practice. Yeah, it was wild because we had come into this industry thinking, this is a problem that ads are funding extremism. And what we ended up learning right away is the ad industry is also defunding local news. Oh, interesting. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so these keyword block lists that Nandini just explained, they're being used to stay away from what advertising agencies or companies are calling like sensitive social issues. So they're so terrified of being anywhere near anything that is like bad news that now they're just blocking the news. And it started because 
they didn't want to be on extremism, but we don't have the technology to identify and avoid extremism or racist dog whistles or xenophobia. It just doesn't exist. I mean, you need a human to do that. You can't do that with algorithms. So instead, they were like, I know, anytime the word hate comes up, we're going to block it. And of course, <laughs> right? like, that's like totally illogical. It's interesting. I mean, do you, I've saw a lot of people are mad at you. I get a lot of this, like people from the far right who want me to die. How have you been handling all of that? Oh, thanks for asking. Nadine and I are really tight and we support each other in a lot of ways and emotionally is one of them. Nandini has been dealing with this since 2016. So I take my cues from her and she's an incredibly strong person and also gets a lot more of the vitriol because she's an immigrant. And I mean, we also talk to lawyers and when we need to law enforcement and we, I mean, we take our personal security very seriously. Yeah. So the Bongino report, they have all these sites. Like, I mean, I remember when I went to CPAC, it's like they have MAGA news one, two, three, right? All these like fake sites that, do this kind of bundled advertising, right? Can you explain how that works? Sure. So Bongino has two out, like two main outlets, Bongino.com and BonginoReport.com. And basically they, they like they operate just like Breitbart did in 2016. They submitted their website to various ad exchanges. They were accepted. These ad exchanges have inventory guidelines and supply policies and a so-called stringent and careful acceptance process and all that, but clearly not because a lot of these ad exchanges allowed Bongino into their inventory. And once once they're in there, they get access to thousands and thousands of advertisers. So this is not just, I mean, this is definitely on Google for sure. Google is the biggest ad exchange and Google is, I would say, the worst of all the bad actors as well as the biggest. But there's companies that you've never heard of that are also ad exchanges that also, you know, they're doing the same thing as Google. They're, they've invited Bongino into their inventory and they make payouts to not Bongino directly, but they do it through a middleman. And so it's not immediately clear to the average sort of person how, how Bongino makes money. But from our research, we're able to say, you know, for sure that Bongino has a middleman, an intermediary, so to speak, who does and manages like all the advertising relationships and payouts and optimization and all that stuff. Basically that their job is to maximize revenue for Bongino.com and they handle the relationship with the ad exchanges. What is the new product? There are a handful of companies in America who are relatively unknown, who make hundreds of millions of dollars a year, we largely categorize them as ad exchanges. So basically they deal, they like traffic in ads, like literally the, like the creative and money to pay publishers when the ad shows up on their ads base, on their, on their website and data. These ad exchanges traffic, they're like the ushers or like, I think of them as like the traffic controls with like the baton at the airport, those guys and girls with, uh, with those like long lightsaber like <laughs> uh, tools, those people, those ad exchanges, they're the ones who are trafficking $400 billion. They are making or breaking our media sphere. It is imperative that we pay attention to what they do. And that's what we do at Check My Ads. We uncover the relationship between these ad exchanges and the publishers who they are funding. So the publishers that are the most extreme. These people, they're making our world more violent. They're making our world more hateful. And we think it's important to uncover the relationship 
between the people who send them money and violence. Yeah, I will just add that that's not their money. That's advertiser money. That's small business mom and pop money. That's your Italian restaurant down the street advertising on Bongino.com. Because when you start up an ad campaign, you like the average person, even the average marketer doesn't have a disinformation team to help them figure out like what the bad sites are. So it's on these ad exchanges to ensure that this inventory never ends up in, these publishers never end up in their inventory. I want to point out that when Google this year, no, last year, it's 2022 now, when Google dropped the Gateway Pundit at the end of last year, in in the fall of last year, that represented $1.1 million of revenue to the Gateway Pundit. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is also money that could be supporting local news. That's exactly right. The money was never supposed to end up with Gateway Pundit. Gateway Pundit was clearly in violation of their publisher policies. That should have been taken care of years ago. It took, you know, it took real public pressure. It took a documentary for them to, for them to finally act. And it was really the, the, the humiliation and, and public shaming that forced them to eventually act. Have you gone to Google and like what is their response? I mean, that's kind of shocking to me. I didn't know about those. The documentary I was referring to was a French documentary. It was a, the host of that documentary was a, a French woman named Odd who actually like took printouts of pages and pages and pages and articles from the Gateway Pundit and other various disinformation sites. And somehow she got a Google spokesperson on a, like a, for an on-camera interview and had this very adorable yellow binder full of disinformation, basically. And so first she asked the Google representative, how do you handle disinformation? You guys are one of the biggest monetizers of disinformation. Why haven't you addressed the Gateway Pundit yet? And he said, you know, well, I got to go and, you know, we got to go check it out. We need some time to look into whatever you're talking about. And she's like, well, I have this binder here full of articles for you. And it's full of COVID disinformation and, you know, vaccine bullshit and this and that. And this man's like the blood drained from his face when he saw that because there is no answer. And he freaked out. His voice went up two octaves and they, uh, you know, his handler ended the interview. (laughs) I mean, that is the level of public shaming it takes. And they, so Google dropped the Gateway Pundit. I think it was just two days before this documentary was set to air. And, and, And it aired in France of all places, but that is what it takes. Nandini, you have contacted Google too. I have. Yeah, I think we should talk about that. Like you've been badgering them for years. Yeah, it was last year. This time, you know, in the months leading up to the January 6th insurrection, there was a website called mymilitia.com that that myself and... (laughs) There was a website called (laughs) mymilitia.com. We should laugh, but it's so dark and dystopian that (laughs) we gotta laugh. It's just, it's so obvious. And... I tweeted at Google a bunch of times. I think I had, I think I reached out to their ads liaison. Like I did everything I could to put it on the record. MyMilitia.com, they're organizing for some kind of a rally or something on January 6th. This is extremely dangerous stuff. Um, No movement on that. I went back after, you know, January 6th to check on those ads. They had disappeared. Oh, interesting. It was after the fact. 
And yeah, I'll, I'll keep, I keep going back to them. I keep being public about, I keep this, um, this conversation in public as much as possible. Google has a person whose job it is to deal with the public. The Twitter handle is ads liaison. And I tweeted at ads liaison about another website called revolver news. That's Darren Beatty's website. And, um, they, I think that, so that's my last big win with Google. They, they did demonetize that, but Really, it's like, I, I don't know what goes on internally. I've never really had a conversation with anyone there. It's it's really like pulling teeth. And I think there's just a ton of internal politics out there that I'm not privy to. So the, the only thing that we can control is the pressure that we put on them. I think it's important to say like, yes, the ads disappeared from my militia, but they are still funding the people who make the most money off of the insurrection. And that's what our most recent campaign is about, is to literally pressure all these ad exchanges, including Google, to stop funding people who incited real-world violence. Like who? Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, Glenn Beck and his program The Blaze, Steve Bannon, of course, and his program War Room, and Tim Poole, who is a popular YouTuber who incited the insurrection and who has spouted, all of them have spouted lies about election uh, disinformation and stop the steal and the big lie. And they're making millions off of these ad exchanges and these ad dollars that were never meant for them. And it's also money that could go to local news and local news could actually make democracy stronger as opposed to destroying democracy. That's right. We don't know how much money these folks have made through these ad exchanges. We can only take a guess. Uh, Steve Bannon himself in 2018, in, in June 2018, he still didn't know who we were. He was uh, he was at that now, I think, quite infamous dinner with Paul Gozar and a couple of others in oh London, a couple of other extremist leaders. And while they were there, he you know they all were bitching about sleeping giants. And uh, and he said he was the one who who basically confirmed on camera that they lost their business model because of sleeping giants. Without ads, there is no economic model. Basically saying that the only way for them to sustain their operations without ads is through soliciting donors. That confirms for us that we have the playbook for demonetizing these folks and we can do it again. How can we support what you guys are working on? Right now, it's imperative that these ad exchanges realize that they are under the microscope. So what we're doing is asking people to send emails to them, literally asking questions about their policies and about how they square their policies against the real world violence that incurred due to their decisions. And at checkmyads.org slash J6, you can see uh, we have a a page, like a fundraising page set up, but under the updates tab, even if you don't want to donate and we support anyone who doesn't have the funds or the inclination, but who can send emails, that is the most powerful thing that you can do right now to defund the insurrectionists. We know it works. We know they hate public pressure. We know they hate being in the limelight. So let's put them there. Let's shine sunlight where there isn't any. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, you guys. Thank you so much, Molly. Thank you, Molly. Jared Holt is a resident fellow at Digital Forensic Research Lab and the Atlantic Council who researches domestic terrorism. Welcome to the new abnormal, Jared Holt. Hey, thanks for having me. You have a very big piece out. Can you talk a little bit about 
how you decided to get to this piece. Yeah, so it's a big 40-something page report uh, that I published with the Atlantic Council, and it is essentially a year in review on domestic extremism. And the reason I wrote this report is because sometimes I, you know, get the feeling as somebody who works on this all the time that whenever we have a major you know, kind of graphic tragedy like January 6th was. A lot of the discussion, you know, and rightfully so, kind of revolves around that tragedy and establishing facts and, and you know, the narratives of what happened then. Uh, but extremism is a moving target. And my hope with writing this report was to, you know, kind of get up to speed with exactly what's happened in the year since January 6th and where things stand. And things have gotten much, much better, and we don't need to worry anymore, right? Yeah, it's all better. It's all done. Everybody downloaded the Hamilton soundtrack, and <laughs> we're good. Candy <laughs> cloth for everyone. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to, I had to do it. It's, it's welcome. We're lucky we all didn't die of cringe today. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, there's still time. Well, um, things did not get better. They changed. So there has been a lot of admirable accountability work um, between the DOJ investigating, uh, the House Committee investigating. Uh, those are two very different investigations. One's criminal, one is exploring legislative outcomes. Uh, and additionally, I tend to think as somebody who's done this for a while that the way that we understand what's going on and you know and our kind of vocabulary for talking about it has improved vastly over the years so all of that has been good but as far as the state of play goes you know after january 6 a lot of these groups uh, extremist groups and then also the kind of run of the mill trump supporters who believed a lot of the same stuff and ran into the capitol with them they went home thinking they had done something really amazing um, but then arrests started piling up social media companies started acting and uh it quickly turned into paranoia. And there was actually a, a bit of a freeze. Uh, there were a few events here and there, but uh, for the most part, like extremist movement leaders were telling their supporters explicitly, hey, don't do anything, just lay low, let's see if this blows over. And it was a little bit of a PR crisis. And the rest of the year was spent by these extremist movements, kind of adapting strategy, adapting messaging, and doing the best they could to kind of adapt and resurface. And by the middle of 2021, uh, a lot of them had been able to kind of resurface in their own way. Jared, so I have a question I feel like you're the most qualified to answer of this is there is a million tweets as the arrest started that this will cripple every extremist group for years to come and that they're never going to recover from this. It seems like this report does not agree with that. No, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. After Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017, that neo-Nazi rally that left police officers injured and uh, Heather Heyer murdered in the street, people said kind of the same thing. But it's not as if white supremacy has gone away. You know, the leadership of that movement shuffled a bit. Things don't look the same. And I guess that's kind of the same point that I'm making with this report is like, sure, there was some damage. You know, groups like the Oath Keepers don't exist the same way that they did prior to the attack. The Proud Boys don't exist the same way prior to the attack. But the group didn't go like, like none of these 
groups or movements really went away. They were battered by the attack, but they weren't broken by it. Um, do you think they got sort of more sophisticated on the way that they communicated with each other? I don't know if sophisticated is the word I would use, but it, it has <laughs> changed a bit. There's kind of been two big things happening in extremism in the last year. And one of them has to do with the ideology. The ideology, thanks to the help of elected officials and media figures in conservative influential spaces like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene. In media, you've got Tucker Carlson. On social media, you've got a whole host of people with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers helping this effort, kind of pulling stuff that even a decade ago would embarrass the living shit out of like a Republican politician for being associated with it, kind of declined that into the mainstream. Maybe the best example of that is January 6th, historical revisionism, you know, advancing these conspiracy theories that what happened that day was this, you know, FBI orchestrated plot or something like that. So that's been happening on one end. And then kind of the flip side of that has to do with the actual organizing. So there hasn't really been an appetite to return to D.C. or to try to, you know, take these more uh, anger-filled or, or hate-filled causes and jam them all together into these massive rallies. Instead, it's kind of dispersing at the instruction of many of the, you know, kind of influential, uh, like, thought leaders or organizers in far-right movements to go down into state, regional, and even local levels sometimes. Um, and that's enabled them, A, to avoid the same kind of scrutiny they would get uh, from doing this on a national scale. Um, and we can see like exactly what they're afraid of. Uh, in, For example, in September 18, when they did the Justice for J6 rally, and it was like 30 people and like 500 members of the press there. Um, you know, that kind of scrutiny, that kind of attention isn't something they need right now. Uh, and then, so they avoid some scrutiny in that respect, but also sometimes these local venues can be a more efficient way for them to accomplish what they're trying to do. And people like Steve Bannon have been very explicit in, you know, telling their followers that, you know, if you run for a position in your local Republican party or your school board or something, it doesn't really take that much to get elected. And if enough people do that, uh, you know, you can kind of deal out death by a million paper cuts to a system that they think ultimately failed to, you know, prevent Trump from losing an election that he lost, if that makes sense. Yeah. It seems like I just saw this piece from the New York Times yesterday about disinformation coming from podcasts. And the War Room, Steve Bannon's podcast, was like the, the largest spreader of disinformation. Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I feel like people don't really realize how many people listen to that show. It wasn't always like that, but especially in the last year, his listenership has seemed to have grown a whole lot. And I think maybe more importantly is like, A, the audience is growing, but B, Bannon has these pre-existing connections in the Republican Party. So the ideas that are being espoused on his show, you know, if not directly face-to-face -face because they're a guest on the show, but even indirectly through the distribution is reaching members of Congress and lawmakers, policymakers, you know, and that is also like its own huge danger to get elected officials who, you know, swear to uphold democracy 
being inundated with these ideas and these pressures to do the opposite. And it strikes me one of the largest people with the largest platforms, larger than Tucker Carlson even, is Joe Rogan, who has sort of dipped his toe in a lot of this stuff too. Yeah, yeah. His show is huge. I mean, there's this mass delusion, paranoia thing. It's like some, I am probably botching the last word. But. Right. No, but there he had a psychiatrist on where he was a anti-vax. Mass psychotic formation. Mass psychosis formation. Thank you. Like that term is spreading around the MAGA universe and it comes from a Joe Rogan podcast appearance by this like weird doctor guy who claims to have invented mRNA vaccines or something. But yeah, so so like, so even Rogan's podcast, even though you're not going to like flip it on and see Rogan in a MAGA hat or something, has emerged as this massive like influence node in MAGA land. Yeah, it's pretty scary. One of the things that intrigued me when I was reading through uh, this, Jared, was um, Gab Chief Executive Officer Andrew Torba, who has stated he's attempting to build a parallel Christian economy. I think my what the fuck meter went uh, into the red and nearly broke. Can you give me a, a little bit of a TLDR on that? Yeah, so something that I know in the report is the spread of what I kind of call prepper mentality. Um, oh, yeah. if, any, if anything, it's like, it's maybe even closer to the the type of psychology that motivated the American redoubt in like the 2000, what was that? 11, 12, something like that, where... Life straws and... Yeah, just, right. just this idea that like, if you're white and Christian and have these right-wing views that society eventually is coming for you and... You know, you need to prepare yourself in some way, whether that is buying food buckets from Tim Pool or like (laughs) supplements from Alex Jones and like or, you know, sort of the translation into the digital space we're seeing of that philosophy is sort of what Andrew Torpa here is giving voice to, which is. You know, coming up with, you know, if you're white, Christian, conservative, big tech has it out for you. So maybe you won't need it today, but for now, we need to build payment processors and web platforms and browsers and video services and chat rooms and stuff like stuff that we own that can exist as a backup for the end times of posting or whatever. <laughs> the end times of posting. Fuck. So in all this, there's a lot to be concerned with. Is there anything people can be doing to try to diminish this? I think a lot of it just has to do with acting like we're in the moment that we are. You know, if you believe that there is a threat to democracy, you should fucking do something about it. I don't know. And like this problem, like January 6th was a symptom of a problem that's been brewing for a long time uh, and is continuing to brew to this day. It was a violent expression of a broader societal sickness. Because it's gone untreated in a meaningful way for so long, it's unfortunately become this kind of whole of society problem. You know, it's easy to think of what's happening as some weirdos on a fringe platform or some Proud Boys over in New York City fighting with Antifa or something. But really, this is a so like these are expressions of a social move that's occurring in the US right now. And the only way I think we're going to triumph over it is to kind of beat it at its own game and, you know, form a new social movement of people who care about multiracial democracy, about inclusion, about 
truth and legitimacy and you know, take these collaborative approaches and kind of try to have a whole of society fixed to a whole of society problem. It's going to take a bunch of different things on different fronts. There's roles for tech companies, there's roles for law enforcement, there's roles for the average podcast listener going to mypillow.com slash Jerry. No, 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 no,
Oh. Perhaps you've heard of him. <laughs> That's a wig, right? Mm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not getting into <laughs> I honestly wig speculation. Don't know. <laughs> That's a piece. He has a book coming out. It is called Political Prisoner. Persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced. Go off, King. Go off. Go off. <laughs> That's right. Through the course of his two trials, it was revealed how Manafort was able to live a lavish lifestyle. A federal judge ordered him to pay $24.8 million in restitution. He was Donald Trump's campaign manager in 2016, yet another member of Trump world who went to jail, but he did get pardoned by Donald Trump. I don't think it's a piece. Uh, Trump's pardon of Manafort came in December 2020 amid other pardons for political operative Roger Stone, Charles Kushner. That was one of the better ones. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> during Pardon Gate, he pardoned Paul Manafort. And now Paul Manafort is settling the score with his piece, hair piece. <laughs> no, his book, <laughs> Political Prisoner. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.